don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. Good morning. Come on in to Second Captain Saturday. Owen and Murph here waiting for you. How are you, Kieran? Hey, Owen. Good morning. I'm going to need you to do something for me straight off, Murph. That's okay. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of today's guest for a minute and tell me if you think you could work in the environment that he works in every single day, all right? Okay. This guy's office is a shed out the back of an old RIC barracks situated in a swamp (laughs) in County Sligo where it rains 300 days of the year. And we're not talking... Yeah. Well, wait a second. We're not talking misty, ethereal, west of Ireland rain, according to the man himself. We're talking apocalyptic stuff in the winter. No internet in this shed. Mm. Just a man with a pen, blank sheet of paper, waiting for something to jump up from his subconscious and find its way onto the page. Do you feel you would have the discipline to hang in there and grind out a day's work? I'm not entirely sure I'd be fit for it, Owen. That, I'm gonna tell you straight my friend, off. is why today's guest is a multi-award winning novelist, playwright and scriptwriter, and you are stuck here being my country sidekick <laughs> all, all these many years. <laughs> oh well, oh, oh well. Uh, Limerick's Kevin do, Barry. There had to be something to separate us, I suppose, and that's what it is. <laughs> it's one of the things, yeah. Limerick's Kevin Barry's on the show today. He does get out of that shed from time to time. Don't worry, he mm. is able to communicate with the outside here, hold, hold on a second Sligo's right. a pretty nice part of the world as well by the way it's getting a bit of a going over here Owen well listen I'm just using the, using the man's words mm. yeah, he calls okay. it a swamp not, not, not the entire county of Sligo just the yeah. bit that he's living in just instead. the 60 or 70% of it that's swamp <laughs> while he's in that shed he does write some absolutely brilliant work and some pretty out there stuff as well the, inhabiting the mind of John Lennon living on the island that Lennon bought off the coast of Mayo at the height of the Beatles' popularity, mm-hmm. for one. Imagining a futuristic city of Bohan on the west coast of Ireland where rival gangs compete for control, that kind of thing. And as one of Ireland's greatest current writers, Kevin's work has been recognised with some prestigious international awards over the years. Although, as you know by now, that matters very little to us. We're all about community games medals. <laughs> if you haven't competed in the Puck Fada at Mosley <laughs> at some point, then really... What are yeah. these big Show international literary those awards? Those particular kinds of medals, not all your medals. <laughs> Can Kevin Barry make an impact on this year's second captain's greatest non-sports person, sports person contest? That's the question, Murph. What's the latest? I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. She's been uh, number one now longer than Wet Wet Wet, which is a nice up-to-date reference there. And uh, Ashton B saw off a spirited challenge from last week's guest Sharon Horgan to remain at the top of our greatest non-sports person sports person leaderboard for this season. 78 points is the score to beat. Tommy Tiernan makes up our top three. And Paul Howard gets his weekly mention <laughs> just to say that he's still rock bottom. Pretty sure Paul Howard is sorry he came on this series <sighs> of the show. Well, Kevin Barry's fate will be revealed by the end of the hour on. Can Kevin make an impact on this year's table? That's what we'll find out. What sort of game does he bring to the table? You're going to find out very soon. Tweet us at Second Captains. Fire us a text on 51551. First up, we're going to play an absolute classic to start your morning and then it's the great Kevin Barry on Second Captain Saturday.
to your first song of the day and it's not a bad one is it the Beatles with Dear Prudence this morning's guest on Second Captain Saturday was recently described by Blind Boy Boat Club as the man who does for the Limerick accent what James Joyce did for the Dublin accent by bringing the lyricism of that accent to the page he's also the first Limerick man to come up for air since the All-Ireland victory Kevin Barry thanks so much for coming in thanks a million for having me cheers you've obviously lived in a, quite a lot of places but is your sporting heart still very much in Limerick? Um, it's probably more than any place else in Old Trafford, unfortunately. <laughs> I'm, I'm one of that um, religion. But yeah, yeah, I guess as, as, as a kid, I was um, uh, kind of omnivorous for sports in Limerick in terms of watching and, and playing most things until I was about 11 or 12 before the usual kind of distractions present themselves in the form of, you know, music and looking at young ones and all that kind of thing around the streets. But it was, uh, yeah, it was it was an amazing um, Sunday for us a few weeks ago, you know, where everyone from Limerick is still getting over that last kind of minute where, where doom in, in the most dramatic form it could possibly take seemed to present itself. I was, I was certain that Galway were going to get a goal when he lobbed it in, you know, in the last minute. And I think it would have been the end of us, really, yeah, when for you're, all time. When you we reflect on it, we would never recover. It's amazing know? that even after winning the All-Ireland, the fatalism is still there. People are still saying, it's bad, what, what, yeah. what would it have been like if we had lost that somehow? Victory is no cure for the fatal streak. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was just, you know, it was just kind of... It wasn't even joy for about 10 or 15 minutes. It was just sheer relief. Thank God we didn't make an absolute hames of it again. You know? <laughs> yeah. it was, uh, it's weird even looking at the two All-Ireland final senior men's All-Ireland final wins put back to back and how much more popular the Limerick win was compared to the the poor Dublin, much maligned Dublin football, I Dublin know, footballers. Yeah, but yeah. It, it is only natural people. I mean, you could, put, you could put out a Nazi fifteen to win the All Ireland football, and it'd be more popular around <laughs> <laughs> the rest of the country. <laughs> Dublin side, but but that's it. You know, like people just latch on to the emotion that something brings out, and yeah. for whatever. Well, we all know the reasons why it was so emotional for Limerick people to win, yeah. but that's it. That's why people sort of get involved in the first place in sport yeah. for that level of emotion and reaction. I don't, I don't know what happened. I was in such shock after the match. It brought out a slightly evil streak in me because my wife is from Waterford. God help us, Adisha. And she said, she said, congratulations. You know, I, I hope I, I could say the same for my county. And I said, it'll never happen in your lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know what it was that made me take this turn. It was a sudden arrogance. Yeah, yeah of, you of, turned into a, uh, uh, like an the, oppressor. Yeah. The underdog turns into the overdog very quickly. And, yeah. and is worse straight away yeah. than anything that ever came before, you know. There's a line in City of Bohan which says, long gone in Bohan, the days of the All-Irelands. Oh yeah, maybe yeah. that'll need a little rewrite. Him. That that was a reference to the, the fact that the author was uh, was wheeled in his trolley downtown to see him the last time they won it in '73. Um, <laughs> you were wheeled in a trolley in my buggy down to oh, see yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Pat Hartigan and all that. I do remember uh, this. Is a, I was talking to a friend from the Midlands the other day, and this is a weird one. Um, when Offaly won the All-Ireland in the early 80s we got a half day from school in Limerick because uh, <laughs> Pat Fury was our, was our Irish teacher Right So yeah, it was great yeah. So we were we had a second team very much uh, in terms of Ireland in the 80s Yeah, yeah The T.G. Carr co-commentator yeah, people yeah, would be yeah. very familiar with him Yeah, yeah You mentioned that football is, was the biggest deal for you growing up Yeah, yeah. For, Forget about Manchester United for a second because we don't want to turn too many people off yeah. you Kevin, <laughs> in, in this chat These are the golden years of Limerick soccer too Were you plugged in closer to home? Oh God, yeah This is the, the own hand year I guess you'd have to call it when it was Limerick United playing in the markets field still. Probably 1980 and I think mm. I was at every home match and a few of the away matches. Um, markets field had a brilliant atmosphere at the time and there would have been four or five thousand there on a Sunday, you know. Famously then after having won the league they had to draw in the European Cup against Real Madrid which caused much controversy around Limerick in, 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 in the usual local way. 
because the match was was moved to Dublin on the basis that it was going to draw a huge crowd. But I, I remember following on on Radio One, and it was um, a very dramatic game because Limerick went ahead like after twenty minutes or something, and it was just I think a very very late second goal for Madrid that won it for him. So it was kind of legendary stuff. Yeah, well, yeah. it was. It, I think Real Madrid got all the way to the European Cup final that year, only conceding four goals, and two of them were scored by Limerick's Des Kennedy. Is that <laughs> right, it? Yeah, so yeah. it was one of these hilarious. Uh, I remember it actually he yeah. had a kind of a shock of hair. He kind of had to start a, a Limerick afro kind of yeah, going yeah. on. Yeah, well, yeah. Perm kind of job. The, yeah. the footage still exists we were watching it actually earlier this morning and uh, it comes from a long free little bit of messing around in the penalty area Des Kennedy kind of hits it in perhaps off his knee maybe that's being a tad unfair let's not quibble at this stage yeah, yeah. the goal's a goal leave, leave turns, it go yeah. yeah he turns around and starts like blowing kisses to the 6,000 uh, like, this is this is a YouTube hole I can fall down yeah, oh, oh god yeah 4 o'clock in the morning yeah. job <laughs> but it is one of those where you're like we're probably not going to knock Real Madrid out of the European Cup, yeah. but I've just scored a goal and I'm going to milk this moment forever. For absolutely <laughs> all that it's worth. So you got to hold your hands up and say, well done, Des Kennedy. Yeah. The Independent had a one of these retrospectives of the that Limerick-Real Madrid game recently because Real Madrid ended up playing Liverpool in the final that year. So when Real were playing Liverpool in the final this year, the, the Limerick game, Lim- Limerick-Real Madrid game came to the fore a little bit again. There was a quote from Owen Hand in that piece saying, I still remember hearing from some of the fans who arrived late at Lansdowne Road that they thought we were Real Madrid, <laughs> which I have to say, I've always liked Owen Hand. i got, I got to say that's maybe one of those <laughs> memories that gets embellished yeah, in the telling so, over, yeah, over the years. Yeah, yeah, yeah it should, couldn't have been that hard, I wouldn't have thought. You live and work in what you describe as a swamp in Sligo. It, it, well, we, we, we get it, we get it. It is a swampy atmosphere up there with the, with the rain that we get in, in South County Sligo. Yeah, I'm down where, um, where Sligo and Leitrim and Roscommon all kind of run into each mm-hmm. other, you know, so there, there are great local uh, football rivalries and so forth. But yeah, yeah, living out in, in, in the West now there for about the last 11 years. And is that largely for creative or financial reasons? Well, it's weird, you know, you, uh, as a writer or as any sort of um, artist or creative person, you make these decisions that don't seem to have anything to do with the work, you know, you, where you got to live, where you got to base yourself. And of course, that then tends to influence the work very much as it comes out. The, the location colours what happens on the desk for you to a great extent. And like I have noticed now over the last couple of years, whenever I... I write a short story, say they seem to be getting closer and closer to the house all the time. You know, they're, they're circling in and yeah. homing in on me. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely having a, a strong influence now on the way, the way the work takes form as well. So the, the decision originally was financial, but now you see it as a, as a creative. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, kind of inadvertently followed the only good piece of writing advice I've ever heard, which was an American writer, Annie Dillard, said, just keep your overheads low. That's all you need to know uh, <laughs> to, to pursue a writing life. And it was um, by accident I managed to do that. Yeah, my, my wife and I had just come back from living in the UK at the height of kind of Celtic Tiger time. And so we were looking for a house and someone said, Leitrim is cheap. <laughs> so we had, we had a look at a place in Leitrim and, and that didn't work out and then very quickly found this place. It's an old um, it's an old Garda station, RIC barracks in, in, in Belenafad out in Loch Arrow. It's, uh, no, it's, a, it's a great place to be based, you know, it's um, the overheads are cheap enough and it's... Um, you know, it's a beautiful place. Yeah. Well, even the even the barracks has echoes of uh, McGahern, I suppose. When it you does, hear, yeah. Uh, writers from, he, from he, that corner. He yeah. grew up in one, and it's a very similar building um, over in Coot Hall. Mm. His one. It's hard enough actually to find much information on the old RAC barracks, but I, I, I know that 
the roof was burnt off in the War of Independence, and it was, and it was rebuilt then subsequently. But it was it was a very courteous operation of the era where they they gave the lads a week's notice that they were burning the roof off, <laughs> like a week. Yeah, I said that like Sunday we'd be we'd be down. So so, so there was no one. Monday at the, le- the very latest. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's weird, like when you look at the, that kind of era, so much of it was on the this kind of local understanding level, and it was all gestural, really. What mm. was what was going on? I've heard you talk before, Kevin, about how just in this on this theme of your location of where you are influencing where you write of dif- different feelings you pick up in different places yeah this H- is how one of these work? things that makes me sound like a complete and utter space which, <laughs> I, which I absolutely am you perfect know? perfect but I'm happy I, yeah I just, I just like to f- think that you know human feeling doesn't just exist within us but it settles into our places and it leaves kind of um its atmosphere and its energies behind. And I think all writers and artists and musicians and any kind of creative people, you're just very often, to make a piece of work, you're just kind of tuning into the, the feeling in a place and responding to that in some way. Would you it, have an, ex- an example of that then? Yeah, I mean, almost anything I write, I would say it starts with a place. Mm-hmm. It, it's something about a place that makes me want to, to, to write it. Um, for, for example, my first novel, City of Bohan, Though it's set in an invented West of Ireland city in the future, it's really about growing up in the cities of Limerick and Cork and kind of using the language of those places to kind of world build, you know, and and to put a place together. You talked earlier about keeping your overheads low, how that would be your advice to young writers. And I'm sure it's something David Kitt would empathise with. He made quite a splash early in the summer when he announced that he was moving abroad because he couldn't afford to live in Dublin anymore. Now, David Kitt is one of Ireland's most successful singer-songwriters, so... I guess if he feels priced out of Dublin, it does make you wonder how anyone trying to make their living in a creative sort of industry can afford to live in any big city. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I, I totally saw where he was coming from it, from with it. And I mean, it's, it's, it's so common to, to so many people now who are trying to make it as, as actors or as writers or, or anything, you know. And I think it's very dangerous for the big cities that are, that are losing the creative people now to, and, and there's no way that the market is going to correct itself for this you know it, it's a, a process that's in training and it's going to continue um, what's hopeful I think is that Ireland for a very small country has a lot of space and it has a lot of beautiful places and it has smaller towns and that's you know, it used to be the way when you were starting out as a writer, you'd go to the city. You would go to the big city and you'd try feed off the energy and that. But it's changing now, you know, people are staying in smaller places and, and going to live in smaller towns. I, I have noticed just going around the place over the last couple of years, just doing readings and so forth. And it's no coincidence that the, the, the Irish cities that feel most buzzy now in creative terms are the ones with the lower rents. So Limerick and Belfast are both having great kind of moments. Um, artistically and creatively and it's because they're affordable you know and people can hang around and not have to work 15 jobs just to pay just to make the nut on the rent Kit got a certain David Kit got a certain amount of abuse for what he said because people said essentially why don't you go and live in one of these other cities or yeah. go, and, go and live in in a swamp in Sligo or whatever the case sure, might be yeah, but yeah. There, there are a couple of things on that like one I don't think he was asking that much I don't think anybody's asking that much to want to live in the city that they were born in um, especially yeah. when their, their their career has gone pretty well and secondly it's what the city loses as he says Dublin's heart and soul is being ripped out and sold yeah. to the highest bid well you, you, I mean you can see this to a, a, a on a vast scale with the way New York has changed I guess over the last kind of 15 or 20 years when I first visited the late 90s you know you'd go around whole, whole sort of quarters of the city where there was still a very kind of edgy atmosphere and air and, and now when you go anywhere in New York in Manhattan at least it feels like New York land you know it feels like a theme park to itself yeah like, um, a, like a TV set yeah it. And, yeah and it just doesn't seem to f- really have any, any 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 kind of pulse there and it's um, 
I don't know. It's 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 kind of good news, I think, for the smaller places and for yeah. the smaller cities. You know, it's weird that you mentioned um, New York because I was going to say that that even ten years ago, Brooklyn was what Manhattan was. Sure, ten yeah. years before that, and this sort of process of I don't even know if gentrification is the right word, but that's what it is, and that's what maybe is happening to. And it's not just Dublin. I mean, even say Galway yeah. is a city that traditionally would have had like this artistic reputation but you can definitely see Galway starting to turn in a different that it's oh, becoming yeah. nearly like a like a pastiche of the oh you know the sort of artistic enclave in the wild west kind of thing it's yeah, playing up to I that mean, in an r- uncomfortable way I think yeah, I, 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 I adore Galway and I misspent large chunks of my youth there mm-hmm. but it was um it does feel sometimes you walk down on a on a July or August Saturday down Shop Street and it feels like Temple Bar West, you know, it, and it just doesn't feel like a city that's built for anything other than other than tourism, um, which is grand, you know, and it's bringing money into an economy and all that. But it's not what it was, um, and I think it's I think it's in a it's a, it's in a tentative condition at the moment, Galway, and it it has to make really important decisions for what it's going to be in the future, you know? Is it all going to be about just getting in that kind of festival buck? Are you going to really try and build on what what made the place what it is, which was the fact that it was full of really interesting artists and, and creative people? So if I was to paint an image of you, Kevin, sitting in your shed in Sligo, spending months pondering ideas for your next novel. That sounds very noble and epic. Well, in the middle in the middle of all this, you're counting the millions that are rolling in from your last novel. Of course. Would that yeah. be pretty much accurate? That's, that's how that's, it all works? That's pretty much the way it goes. <laughs> yeah. is, is there a big pressure, though, to be prolific in, in various forms of writing? Because it's not just novels, it's plays, dramas, all this yeah, kind of stuff. Yeah. It's, 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 I, I script writing going. for films. I, I have some sense that I kind of... Um, I think I have some little trace of guilt that I didn't work as hard as I should have in my 20s at my writing. Like, I, I would do a bit, you know, here and there. Like, I was working as a, as a freelance journalist and doing grand with that, but in terms of writing fiction and creatively, I, I, I would write, you know, at five in the morning having crawled home from Sir Henry's nightclub on all fours. Um, and it would seem like genius at five in the morning, but then you'd, you'd kind of look at it in the light of day and go, Jesus, you know. Oh, I'd, I'd love a light reading sure of that, one of those pieces right but, now, um, to be honest, yeah. Slowly, I, I guess towards my late 20s, I started to get more serious about it. Yeah. And I, I work very hard now. I, I, I go to the shed every day, seven days a week, um, and I sit there for about four hours or five hours. And like, I might be writing for 20 minutes of that, but it's it's my part of the deal is that I'm showing up and I'm going to be a pro if anything is, is sent to me by my subconscious <laughs> or by the gods, you know. I'd but be you're there to catch to it. it. Yeah, yeah, I'd, be yeah. there to, I'd be there to do it. And the glorious thing is the Wi-Fi doesn't read, reach the shed up in <laughs> South County Sligo, so I'm, I'm internet free while I'm out there, which is, a, which is a useful thing for writing as well. I'm not looking at Limerick versus Real Madrid in 1981, <laughs> you know. Many writers uh, and artists have to take other jobs essentially to make ends meet, which is a very normal thing yeah. unless you're the Daily Mail job-shaming actors for working at a grocery store. This happened this week. There's this Jeffrey Owens story from the Cosby Show. That. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. for people who aren't aware of it, he was uh, he was one of the stars of the Cosby Show back in the day. He was, there was somebody took a few pictures of him working in a place called Trader Joe's, which is a grocery store, and the Daily Mail published these, uh, describing the stains on his T-shirt and this kind of thing. There's, there's a quote from the woman who sent them the photo saying, it made me feel really bad. I was like, wow, all those years of doing the show, <laughs> and you ended up as a cashier? Wow, crazy. Yeah, it's nutty. Um, you know, I mean, I mean, the reality for so many 
uh, people who work in, in the arts or creatively or actors that they have to they have to have day jobs as well. The majority of people, I, I would the say, vast majority. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I've been lucky since two thousand and seven when my first book of stories came out. I managed to get by just writing. Um, but I, I, I write a lot, you know. Yeah. I, I don't just write novels or stories. There's play scripts and film scripts and all that as well. Here's Jeffrey Owen speaking about this, about the, uh, some of the themes that came out of this story over the last few days. He was chatting on Good Morning America. We'll have a listen. I do want to say this. I, I, you know, that this business of my being the Cosby guy who got shamed for working at Trader Joe's, that's going to pass. You know, I hope what doesn't pass is this idea that people are now thinking, this rethinking about what it means to work you know, the, the honor of the working person and the dignity of work. And I hope that this period that we're in now where we have a heightened sensitivity about that and a reevaluation of, of what it means to work and that uh, a reevaluation of the idea that some jobs are better than others, because that's actually not true. There is no job that's better than another job. It might pay better. It might have better benefits. It might look better on a resume and on paper. But actually, it's not better. Every job is worthwhile and, and valuable, and no one should feel sorry for me, either from a, a positive or a negative perspective. I've had a great life. I've had a great career. So no one has to feel sorry for me. I'm, I'm, I'm doing fine. What I like most about that interview is that he's wearing his Trader's Joe badge on his jacket yeah, <laughs> as he's yeah. doing it. The point of it is every job has a value. There's, there's a dignity to work, which yeah. I think anyone who's worked you know, at Honest Day knows. You about. know, you'd like to think this is kind of problematically American in a very mm. defining way but at the same time you could see something very similar here if, if a known television actor absolutely found yeah. you in bagging groceries in super value or something you know we'd probably do the same it's just pure snobbery isn't it it's just pure snobbism it's ignorance as well about about things like about what actors get paid you know it's a, it's a very ordinary wage and you're not working a hell of a lot of the time so it's, it's absolutely natural that, that someone would be doing a second job but it's um yeah, it's one of those disquieting stories, isn't it? And, and the worst thing then is, is kind of the age we're in. You can see so many people now looking from in the store and taking snaps for Instagram and all of that as well, just to, to kind of keep it turning over. There was a New Yorker piece, Michael Schulman said, by undervaluing the labour of creative professions, we put artists in a double bind. Their artistic work isn't seen as work, but it's also assumed to be so lucrative that any non-acting job they might pursue is suspect. Yeah. Does that sound about right? It, it does. Uh, I mean, absolutely so. I, I, I mean... The thing is, the, the the kind of economy we're in is changing at such a, a vast rate, especially for people in, in creative industries, you know? Um, like, nobody makes a living as a novelist, really, anymore, as a career novelist. People have to do lots, lots of different things now and have lots of pokers in the fire. Um, you know, I, I kind of try and look at it in a positive way for me. Um, the fact I, I like to work in lots of different zones in mm. terms of the writing. I think working in one at one form can strangely improve you in other in other areas, you know, and it's um, you just treat it positively like that. But it's it's a yeah, it's a weird time when this kind of story gets currency. Yeah, it sure is. But we'll have to leave that one there for now because we have got some more serious business to attend to. Coming up in just a minute, we're going to peel back the layers of this sporting life of Kevin Barry. Second cap and first cap and whatever. We've got one of Ireland's greatest writers, Kevin Barry, keeping us company on Second Captain Saturday this morning. If you want to drop us a text, it's 51551. Tweet at Second Captains. Now, Kevin, usually when we rank the sporting achievements of our guests, it's all about what's happened in the past. 
yeah. we will get into a little As bit of that. Personal achievements, okay. Yeah, personal yeah. achievements, okay. now. Yeah. But you have been involved in the sports world quite recently. You've been working in the w- working in the horse racing industry. Oh, yeah. it makes it sound like you're well, a trainer or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. It's um, yeah. I've been writing a script. I've been working on a script called the Gigi's. Right. Um, it's about an Irish jockey and his dad, who's the trainer, and they're down on their luck, and they get a, a go at a good horse, basically for 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 one last shot mm. at it. You know, so it's um. I, the original idea came to me, I think, on it was a Christmas night or a Stevens night about a few years ago now. And I was watching TG Cahar and there was a documentary on Aidan O'Brien on. And I was watching it, you know, kind of slightly bleary after the Christmas dinner and the glass of wine to hand and whatnot. I was thinking, God, this is such an enclosed world that it has entirely its own vocabulary and language, you know, horse racing. And what was very evident as people talked, the talking heads in this documentary show was they know no world beyond horse flesh nothing matters to these people <laughs> beyond horses you know and, and as I've gone around the last um, the last few years now going to meetings and stuff and, and, and I was down I met a great cha- trainer Charles Burns Burns in County Limerick and had a look around his place down there but it, it is absolutely the case you know not nothing exists beyond the realm of the horse for people involved in it it's kind of a magical little world you know um, and you still see great faces at race meetings you know what do you mean by great faces these like I was at Roscommon races now on Monday night and these yokes who had crawled down out of the hills who don't show up for any <laughs> other event in human life but they're at the races in the best suit and the, the, what's left of the hair is combed across you know yeah. and a few bets are laid and it's just it's uh, it's, it's great to see it well, we're looking forward to that one you're also currently working on the film version of Dark Lies the Island it's done it's, it's, it's all done it's, it's, it's kind of done they're putting the last bits of kind of little details and music to it and all that now so it'll be out towards the end of the year yeah I, I'm very pleased it, it was with the way it's turned out like it's a, it's a it's a weird tone it's very black very dark comedy um, <laughs> we got a great cast for it um, Tommy Tiernan I think one of our Tommy, previous Tom, guests on the show Tommy yeah, is yeah. acting and he's superb yeah, he's, he's a really he's a good actor, actor. Um, Pat Short and, and Peter Coonan and Charlie Murphy and lo- loads of them we've we had a lot of those on the show actually yeah, yeah I'm pleased a lot of it was shot very very near where I live as well in and around Boyle in Roscommon and in and around Lock Key um, so I'm excited about it and see what people make of it you went to a GA school I did yeah. School, yeah I, I went to um Sexton Street CBS in Limerick which is a big hurling school OK I'm going to guess it was some preferential treatment for the hurlers then and I ask you this because Blind Boy Boat Club who I mentioned earlier right, on yeah. was on the show and he went to a rugby school in Limerick He went to art school I think did he, did yeah. he go to art school well, Is that Paul, Paul O'Connell's school? I think it might have yeah, So Paul yeah. O'Connell was in sixth year when he was in first year and he says he alleges we've never got any confirmation <laughs> Paul O'Connell that Paul, <laughs> the future Ireland and Lions legend Paul O'Connell threw a tennis ball at a teacher's head and wasn't punished for it this is the kind of stuff I that believe you, it. That you I totally in. believe it yeah um, well, well, the superstars in our school were the Hearty Cup team, right? Um, and I, th- I remember Sus. The break was from quarter to eleven till eleven, but the Hearty Cup lads were brought out of the class about twenty-five past ten, <laughs> brought down to the staff canteen, and fed soup and sandwiches oh. at, at half ten in the morning, just to, to beef them up for taking on Flannans in, in Ennis was the was the real yeah, enemy yeah. And, and the arch enemy. And uh, I think while I was there, they didn't win a Hearty Cup. They got to the final a couple of times. Um, might have won it since, I think. But it was, uh, yeah, it was at Matt Harlan School. It would tend to be the county lads um, in the school would be the Harlan team. Uh, it wasn't so much of a thing inside the city. I guess the right. soccer and rugby was really competing with the with the with the with the Harlan crowd in the city. So it would tend to be the the big lads from Escape and all these places <laughs> would be would be on the, the the Hearty Cup side. It's funny, Blind Boy actually became quite resentful of sport in part just because he had no interest in it yeah, whatsoever, yeah. Uh, and he was artistic and he felt that mm. he was excluded from that. I don't know. Did you kind of straddle both of those? You seem obviously you've got a huge I interest. Guess in sport. I definitely drifted a bit from from kind of sporting pursuits when teenage years 
came along, you know, I was kind of for a while I was much more interested in, in the Smiths and in, in David Lynch films and in, <laughs> you know, hanging around trying to look cool outside Todd's and O'Connor Street kind of a thing. Um I reckon when I was about twenty twenty one Ferguson kinda of came in at Old Trafford and started to bring in really exciting young players. Lee Sharp, first of all. <laughs> as a, he brought you back into the fold. And Lee gigs Sharp. started coming yeah. through and suddenly they were playing nice stuff and looking like, jeez, we could win a, a, a league or something here one of the years. And they won the Cup Winners' Cup in 91, I think it was. Uh, it was Ferguson's first big trophy. And, and that kind of got me back into the football very much then. Uh, yeah, do yeah. you take any inspiration from sport into your work? Do you know, it's, it's actually, there's something weirdly um, similar in terms of fitness. I have found, like I recently finished a new novel for next year. When you come to the end of a, a long project, you find that you're kind of, you have a kind of a level of writing fitness almost. And it's a very good idea to keep it going and right, to start right, a new right. thing straight away. Um, anyone knows that actual fitness, the hard part is getting it, getting there. Yeah. It's not too bad to maintain it, you know. Yeah. Um, and there's something similar with writing. So I'm inclined now when I finish a long project to s- launch into something else straight away and keep the kind of fitness taking wow, over in that that's way that's so you know? interesting yeah, yeah 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 I mean I would have thought that you sort of build yourself up to a crescendo you know and the yeah, then crash the, maybe the day you I've had over the before. final draft yeah. is like I've done that before final. and yeah. written nothing for a few months but you can kind of you know you, you, you lose the, the use of the muscles a bit and it's it's <laughs> yeah. kind of a good idea to keep going with it but yeah I, I, no, I, I, I find sports people very inspiring as well you know just to, the way they dedicate themselves to it and in any kind of career, but in a writing career especially, you, you come to a point where you realise, okay, you have ability and you have so much talent, but the old truism is true and that's 5% of it and, and so much of it is the, the amount of work you're prepared to put in. Um, I was kind of late 20s before this dawned, really, mm. that I couldn't just do it at four in the morning after mm. Sir Henry's, that I would have to actually really work at it as well to get anywhere. And I became much more kind of professional about it then. Um, kind of realised this is the thing I have to do every day when I get up for hours, you know, before I start to get places with it. You seriously have to find those 4am post Sir Henry's um, <laughs> yeah. writings and put them in some sort of a collection. Maybe you don't have to publish it, maybe just send it <laughs> our direction and we'll, we'll read oh, it Oh man, like I, I, have, I have copies of novels that I wrote in the late 90s and I wouldn't show them to Anne. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like they're at home, they're under the bed. Oh okay. Jesus, no. Yeah. <laughs> After you're gone. Yeah, let's just hope they don't do a Harper Lee on you. That, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, There's fear, I'd say, yeah. <laughs> well listen, which sport then, Kevin, got the best out of a young Kevin Barry as a competitor? Well, I, I, I kind of played everything. And I, I, I must say, without blowing me trumpet, I would be handy enough in terms of like ball skills and things like that, but I never had any pace at anything. Mm. So I, I, I was too slow to get anywhere with it, really. Um, I, fa- I found my meteor, as they say, <laughs> with, uh, when, I got, when I started playing pool in a very serious way in the 90s in Cork. Like I, I played snooker in Limerick at kind of inter-firm level when I was in my first job in a local newspaper there and was starting to be quite a good snooker player like getting breaks in the 30s Ooh, that's which, okay. is, which, decent, is, yeah. which is a place where if you get there in snooker you can start looking higher you can go on a leap yes. if you really stick to it I would it, say the know? first 30 yeah. are the hardest to get yeah, yeah. and progressively easier from there and I was kind of getting there regularly enough but then I, I made the fatal mistake of playing more pool than snooker and pool immediately kills your snooker game just <laughs> kills it stone dead but I was again without sounding immodest I would say kind of 
mid late nineties in in Cork City when I was playing a lot of pool. I was top six, top <laughs> top six. I would I would imagine. Did they, the did they publish your top ten at the Evening Echo? No, this has all gone on in my head. But it was uh, <laughs> I, there would have been nights as well when the arm was moving where you were you were probably looking at number one. You know, <laughs> um, were you a hustler? Not. I have great memories of. Um, oh, we'd play for money, like yeah, for sure. But I have great memories of an old pool hall in Cork, the Pat the Pot Black, which was on Washington Street. I was after that it became the Kino Cinema and now it's kind of a an events kind of music place and I, I would have been a, a daily patron of the Pot Black for a long time um, and always you could spot the really serious pool players in the pubs by the bottle of Club Orange alongside <laughs> him you know that's the guy don't don't have don't a bet don't have guy. a bet well yeah. I would have thought that's that's a dead giveaway I would have thought yeah. if, if you're going for the white man can't jump style of, of hustling you go in there and you look maybe like you've had a few too many and somebody says oh, yeah, I'll take you on right, yeah. well, the, great, the great thing about pool is that it's a, everybody's personality really comes out right. on the pool table and I was a really snaky sneaky pool player <laughs> <you know? laughs> even if I had simple pots on I would always snooker the fella <laughs> if the opportunity Presented Hang on, always you just snookered people playing pool. That's that's a always, scene. always yeah, yeah. just to mess with their heads and just to get the two shots and just to make sure, you know. Um, this is a despicable attitude you're showing. Oh yeah, yeah. definitely a malevolent streak <laughs> of my character would come out on the pool table. It's 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 sad now. I don't play so much or so often. And when I, when I do go back and you know play the odd game of pool, it's it's kind of it's like Zlatan at LA Galaxy. You yeah, know, yeah, the yeah. occasional wander goal, yeah, yeah, but yeah. most of the time you're kind of it's a pale nah. shadow of the, <laughs> the relentless competitor. It you goes. Looked it in the goes. Yeah, yeah. Were you caught up in that golden era of snooker in the eighties oh, in particular? Yeah, yeah. yeah, Jimmy White and all of that. Yeah, you know, yeah. um, weirdly enough, talking about pool and cork towards the end of his life. Quite sadly, Alex Higgins showed up um, playing in kind of pool pubs and stuff around Cork playing fellas for 50 quid and things here yeah. and there I remember hearing that he was around you know but um, yeah in, in, in the whole golden age very much a kind of a Jimmy White man and a Hurricane Higgins man and, and all of that nowadays I watch it but you know on, like a lot of people until until Ronnie gets knocked out yeah. I watch the snooker after that it's kind of like yeah, yeah. I can't be dealing with this Judd Trump kind of nonsense at all yeah. you know? <laughs> no disrespect to Judd of Trump. course yeah. I mean yeah. you know we all respect him as a huge Q man yeah, yeah. yeah. Too groomed now, the snooker yeah. players. The ideal snooker player should look like he has about two days left to live. Yeah, you know what I yeah. mean. And should have a pure pallor, has uh, never seen natural light. <laughs> you know, and, and it's just in there. But it was, um, it was great in the eighties. You know, it, it was a really such a such an obsessive thing for so many of us. Yeah, we needed to pick out one particular highlight of your own snooker okay. playing uh, career. Easily, and, and it's a particular pool shot, and it was in the pop black pool hall on some rainy kind of afternoon in the winter. It must have been about 93 or 94. Hmm. And my opponent had a couple of colours left and I was on the black, but I was snookered on it. And I got up and I had one foot on the floor and one knee on the side of the table. And I was driving right down into the cue ball and I played the most outrageous swerve shot. <laughs> went around his colours, plum hit the black just where it needed to be kissed yeah. and it rolled slowly into the pocket and he was a good player as well so there was quite a few people watching and there was just this hush of about five, ten seconds of pure awe <sighs> you know and then, Barry, he's then, done it again and then they started tapping the butts of their cues <laughs> on the floor as you do you know and that's that's that that was that was the that was the peak 
of my experience <laughs> as a human being, essentially. <laughs> I, I'm never going to top that. You know, I'm never going to get past that. And I even knew it at the time. So it's kind of a melancholy thing. You know, that's that's it. That's the, the highlight of my life right there. It went in. It was a ridiculous swerve. It was like a question mark to shape that the, the thing went, you know. Oh, well, that's almost as impressive as Tommy Tiernan tangling with pool legends, Maltese, Joe Barber and the Rocky Marr. Yeah. on the North Leinster scene back he, in the day. He was making that up. He was yeah. making all that stuff. Yeah. He, he painted himself as a pretty handy player himself, so he might have to, he might have to take him on. If we, if we want to organise a showdown. Yes. Uh, a showdown. Yes, yeah. let's, let's keep that under our hats yeah. for the time yeah. being. Yeah. Okay, and that yeah. could be yeah. very heard okay. here. You've stated your case very strongly. Now you must sit back, relax, and listen to the verdict of Murph here as he ranks this sporting life of Kevin Barry. You don't understand. I could have had class. We don't have stars in this game, Mrs. Weaver. Well, what do you have then? People like me. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. All right, Kevin. Here it goes. It's time for us to rank your all-time sporting highlight. Identify the sports person that we feel most closely resembles your sporting personality. And you've drawn it quite beautifully for us there. And then come up with a score out of 100 via our rigorous scoring process to discover if you will become this year's greatest non-sports person, sports person. Your sporting highlight remains those halcyon days of the mid-90s, hustling a living from the pool hall rubes of Cork City. Will you ever be as happy again? Well, I think yes. Probably I mean, come on, pool and snooker emporia are extremely stinky, unhealthy places, but I can see where you're coming from. So you're preying on the poor and unfortunate, less gifted Q artists of our southern capital. Puts me in mind of world-renowned snake and troll artiste par excellence Sergio Ramos, a man who, like you, cold-heartedly laughs in the face of common human decency. He does it for millions of euro a year. You did it to ensure winner stays on. Uh, but some bonus points are on offer, Kevin. We've heard you reading from your work before in various interviews, and you've got a magnificent speaking voice. So for five extra points, could you now please read this contemporaneous match report of the Limerick-Real Madrid match from the 1980-81 European Cup? This is from oh, the Irish Times, Thursday, September 18th, 1980. Take I will, it away, I will Kevin Barry. So with relish. Go and see Larry Cunningham play, they ordered. And while this scribe is not the greatest fan of Irish country and Western music, an evening spent listening to sagas of the untimely deaths of drunken, tubercular, callow youths far away from home seemed at least interesting. But it was not the real Larry Cunningham they were talking about, but Lowry Cunningham, the Real Madrid striker, who turned out for last night's match against Limerick in Lansdowne Road. And if anything died, it was the myth that little teams like Limerick have no hope against the superstars, because Real Madrid found themselves having to fight hard and long to win a most unsatisfactory victory. <laughs> oh, now come on, that's okay. number one for I me. Ha- I have to say that was, that was pretty good. Okay. Uh, however, However, as Oscar-nominated director Lenny Abrahamson found out a couple of summers ago, we have very little respect for the noble art of pool playing on this show. So it's a total of 68 points, plus your five bonus points, which you earned with aplomb there, for a total score of 73 points. Kevin Barry, Ah. this has been your sporting life. Kevin, thank thank you you so much. much. Brilliant stuff. Round of applause for that reading. That was great. Shook my hand, no was all he said.
That is the band with a song called The Weight on Second Captain Saturday. Thanks so much to Kevin Barry for being such great company this morning. i got to say, that dramatic reading of the Limerick versus Real Madrid match report mm. was not flagged with Kevin in advance as far as I know, Murph, unless yeah. you, you flagged it with No, I didn't. So no. his first look at the words was as he was bashing them out. Yeah. Which is pretty his first impressive, so. look at the word tubercular was as he was reading <laughs> would, it out, which is extremely impressive. I need pre-reads of that or whatever you, you might call sit them. down. Yeah. Half hour sit down with myself beforehand. Great insights into difficult economic realities or artistic life from Kevin Barry says Growing Your Walsh who notes she says Kevin notes cities like Limerick are absolutely buzzing now because artists writers musicians and all sorts of creative people can afford to live here we're lucky they can Cornelius O'Grady from Beetlebone one of my all time favourite characters thanks for him Kevin it's a very specific thank you to <laughs> Kevin Barry there what a great interview with Kevin Barry here in my kitchen enjoying the radio topped up my coffee breakfast dishes still in the sink great show that's Denise Curtin in Port Leash. Now, it is possible to wash dishes and listen to the radio, but listen, it's not, it's not my job, Denise. Take a load off there yourself. Uh, Kevin's line that you could send a team of 15 Nazis to play <laughs> play Dublin at the moment and people will be cheering on the yeah, Nazis. Yeah, I mean, come on. Well, I don't know. I think you might be right. You could extend the analogy. Send a team of 15 all-star Nazi hurlers to play an all-star Gaelic football team. Mm. And the Nazis, Murph, I put to you, would still have their supporters. Poor old Gaelic football. It's been through the mire. It has. Beaten up and down the place all week. A pretty lame championship. 
ends with Dublin's predictable All Ireland All Ireland win. Frank McNally wrote in the Irish Times. That was a brilliant piece. You've read this piece, yeah, yeah as Irish yeah, diary. Uh, that the pastime of complaining about Gaelic football is even more popular than the sport itself, probably far more popular. He points out this has always been the case, going back to the 1940s. The reason for all the self-loathing? It's like the thing Richard Nixon said about himself and JFK. When Irish people look at hurling, they see what they want to be. When they look at football, they see what they are. <laughs> <laughs> that must sting for yeah. well it's 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 a great line about Nixon and JFK and it also it has to be said a yeah. very good line about about hurling in Gaelic football and I mean it is it has had a pretty rough summer and there's a couple of problems with uh, Gaelic football as I see it and Dublin's dominance is just one of them really um, you know there is uh, people keep getting hung up on the fact that you know, there's no end in sight to Dublin's domination and all the rest of that. And, you know, we haven't seen the team of Nazis yet assembled to beat them, or indeed footballers. Um, but it's that's just the way of things. People don't like teams that win. I mean, it's kind of, you do kind of forget about it. But 10 years ago when Kilkenny were winning All-Ireland Finals by, you know, 10 points and 15 points, I mean... They weren't exactly universally loved either. Uh, back then, the story was, well, they don't play football. So they're not, it's unfair that Kilkenny, uh, you know, I mean, of course they're winning. They'll always win. Um, this will end eventually, yeah. you know. Um, will it? <laughs> yeah, I can hear a lot of people around the radio, a lot of people yeah. refusing to do their dishes while they're mm. listening to the radio well, see, it's, the country it's, thinking right now. Yeah, it is easy to be cynical about it because if mm. you're proven wrong, then everyone will be too happy to come back and remind you of it, yeah. you know. It's easy to say Dublin will always win and they'll just keep winning. Um, but that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. I mean, I'm still playing a bit of Gaelic football. Well, this is the point, yeah. And I did know, I, I thought those words about the Nixon comparison mm. there would have stung you in particular as a man in his late 30s clinging on to the last. Well, mid 30s. Football. God. Well, you know, what? 36. Well, over a couple of years there. Yeah. I saw you sending out some tweets during the week. So. It seemed like you went training and you thought, hang on, this sport is being destroyed at the top level, as in criticised. Yeah. But it's a lot of fun to play in. Yeah, I know. It's, well, like, that was it. I mean, you kind of uh, trick yourself into thinking, well, obviously it's terrible. You know, I mean, I've, I've been watching it all summer. Of course it's terrible. And then you actually go out and play it. And it's, I so seem to be having an, an awful lot of fun here. Uh, so, yeah, me, I mean, obviously it's not, uh, that uh, avenue isn't available to everyone to be able to still be able to go out and play the game. But it's still a lot of fun to play. Was that a humble brag? Well, no, I'm just okay. saying I'm, when I actually reach my late 30s old, maybe right. I won't be able to play anymore. But lots for now... Good, yeah, lots of good stuff going on over the weekend. Cork Kilkenny once again contest the All-Ireland Camogie final. I like the look at the US Open tennis. Serena Williams is going for a record equaling 24th Grand Slam title tonight in New York against Naomi Osaka, mm. the first Japanese woman ever to reach a Grand Slam final. She's been disrespecting her opponent as well, I hear. <laughs> I've got some quotes here. Even when I was a little kid, I always dreamed that I'd play Serena in a final of a Grand Slam. Just the fact that it's happening, I'm very happy about it. So that would give me cause for concern that this might not be too competitive. But she continues. At the same time, I feel like even though I should enjoy this moment, I should still think of it as another match. I shouldn't really think of her as like my idol. I should just try to play her as an opponent so that's definitely saying the right thing mm. uh, I don't know how likely it is that she's going either way this is am- amazing because you get this fairy tale story if a player that most people aren't aware of wins the first ever Grand Slam for Japan or you get Serena Williams who's this icon to so many mm. people around the world and her opponent part. yeah <laughs> and, and her opponent exactly yeah so. well yeah I mean uh, that that is kind of it as well isn't it I mean there is perhaps a chance that she's lulling her opponent into a false sense of security by telling her how much of an idol she was. There's also an element of perhaps a 
little bit of shade being thrown. You know, when I was a little girl watching Serena. <laughs> so, I mean, if I was Serena, that's the only bit of that that I would have heard. Who are you up for there? Underdog or mm. overdog? Well, I kind of like the idea of Serena taking Margaret Court's record yeah. off. So I, I'm, I'm for on reasons. board for Serena. Lads, Des Kendi also scored two goals for Limerick in a 6-2 defeat against a Tottenham side featuring Glenn Hoddle in a pre-season friendly in Toman Park. Look, if Des Kennedy had surrounded himself with 10 different... No, I'm not going to slag off the rest of the Limerick team. It does, it does seem like he was a machine. Uh, he, he just stepped up, you know. Whenever, whenever the level went up, that's yeah. when you saw the best of Desi Kennedy. It seems like it, yeah. If you've got any of this morning's front pages in front of you, you're probably looking at the story that Barack Obama has publicly eviscerated Donald Trump for the first time since he left office. He's called out the crazy stuff that is coming out of the White House and called for a restoration of honesty and decency and lawfulness in our government. Our guest next Saturday morning happens to be the man who wrote that speech, Cody Keenan, Obama's speechwriter for more than a decade and a proud Irish American is going to come on the show. So what I'm telling you, Kieran, is the man responsible for the biggest story in world news today next Saturday has to sit back and have his sporting career <laughs> rated by you. I don't know. Well, what this listen, is if I did it to Gabriel Byrne, I suppose I could do it to Cody Keenan. That was a low point. I'm not going to lie to you. Yeah, amazing. I'm looking forward to getting, getting stuck into what goes into writing a, a speech like yeah. that and that whole world, which is something we haven't delved into. When you know now. for a fact that every single word and every single enunciation is going to be poured over by a Majority yeah. of the people in the world. <laughs> I can't believe he was slow getting back to our emails on Friday, though. It's just, just know, unbelievable. Yeah. We're trying to confirm, confirm you for next week. I'll some people can be there. so rude. On, yeah, it's you unbelievable. Know? Yeah. Would it not be better off to praise Dublin's achievement rather than slag them off? No slagging Serena about her achievements. Uh, well, of course. I mean, we, we weren't slagging Dublin off. No, I think um, others might be, though. Quite yeah, a lot of people are. Uh, yeah, I think there's a bit of that going on. Around. If you can't wait a full week for more Second Captains in your life, then check out our daily shows on the Second Captains World Service and get onto our website to have a listen. That's secondcaptains.com. Mark Horgan and Simon Hick produced the show. Killian Down did the research. Thanks to Brian e. October on sound. Marion Fanukin is up next. Thanks, Murph. Thanks, Owen. And just before we wrap up, not going to wrap up just yet because there's a text here from Jamie who says, when will the time come that Limerick people will pipe down about this All-Ireland? Well, not just yet, Jamie, because as today's show had something of a Limerick theme to it with the wonderful Kevin Barry, we're going to play out with a little love note to Limerick. Here's the RT commentary team of Porg Lodge and Anthony Daly combined with the crew from Live 95 and, of course, Dolores. Thanks for tuning in. We'll talk to you next week. Sport is a great thing, Parik, and especially hurling. Our sport, the greatest sport that was ever played by any man. They're getting their award today, mixed with this brilliant blend of youth, fire and enthusiasm, and so thrilled for them. Clareman, rivals of ours all our lives. But you know, the Canberries go up around Crow Park. Dolores wanted their own, Parik, magic, magic moment for them. Well, it's a highly emotional Oh no, my stomach is burning here, lads, I tell you. We've been so... We've been... Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. Dolan! Yeah. boy! He didn't go to blow the onion bag off the back of the net. He went to place it to the corner. Limerick are on the brink of a historic breakthrough at Croke Park. Limerick better wake up here because Galway are back in the game big time. Proved it to the top of the nest. Is there any end to the drama? Is there any end to the drama, Parry? Galway are within one of Limerick. It's hard to watch. Oh, man, I don't know what to say here. Could he possibly, could he possibly, from two, three metres outside his own 45, the greatest sport that was ever played by any man? That's a massive ask. If you wanted one man in the history of Ireland to hit it for you, you might want it to be Joe Kenning.
Steve Hammett, Limerick are coming away with... Yeah! Oh, yes, if the rest of the world only knew about this sport, this is incredible. Limerick have beaten Galway.